know the light of heaven shining upon us tonight through the preaching of the word. And so, Lord, come and honor thy word this evening, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. What What does this mean when we read a verse like in our text this evening? where is described for us the righteousness of the saints. Verse 8, To her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Well, righteousness, according to dictionary.com, and I got that off the internet so you know it's accurate, dictionary.com means the quality or state of being righteous. That doesn't help very much. Righteous, to be righteous, is uprightness or morality. Morally right or justifiable. So therefore, righteousness means the state of being morally upright or morally perfect. By the word saints, we don't refer to the the Catholic version of saints, men and women that have been prayed to over the years. Uh, the scripture is very clear that by the word saints, we refer to all those who are right with God. Those whom God views as accepted in his sight. So if according to our text, those who are accepted with God, those being the saints, are said to be the possessors of this righteousness, we should expect to see moral uprightness and moral perfection in the lives of the saints. You would expect that. The passage here says that the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Yet when you turn to the scriptures and beginning at Genesis and go through the scriptures, what do you see? Do you see moral perfection or uprightness in the lives of the saints? Noah, one who found grace in the eyes of the Lord, one who walked with God, and was preserved from the destruction of the world during the great flood of his day, gets drunk and brings shame on himself and his family. Abraham, right, the father of the faith, the friend of God, one who walked by faith in his pursuit of a better country, one who offers up his only son at the command of God, has a child with the servant of his wife against the commandment of God. Moses, Bible says he was the most meek man on the face of the earth. One who spoke face to face with God as a man speaks to his friend, murders an Egyptian and stuffs him in the sand hoping to avoid detection. Later, when he was commanded to speak to the rock for water to flow, he strikes the rock twice and on that basis is not permitted to enter into the land of promise. Samson, a man consecrated to the Lord from his birth, whom the Spirit of the Lord filled to great heights of accomplishment in the work of the Lord, falls at the hands of Delilah, loses his eyes, and becomes the plaything of the heathen. Then you have David, a man after God's own heart, the Bible says, the giant slayer, and the one who slew his ten thousands in the service of the Lord, the sweet psalmist of Israel, and the first true king of the people of God, refuses to go out to battle, choosing rather to stay at the palace, 
And he falls with Bathsheba, murders her husband, and takes her to be his wife. Later, against the clear revelation of God, David numbers the people and is therefore personally responsible for the death of 70,000 of his own countrymen. You can go on and on. Like I say, you start from Genesis and go right through. And what you find in the lives of the saints is not what you read about in our passage here tonight. Go into the New Testament. Peter, taken directly by the Lord from his fishing vessel and thrust into the inner circle of the, of the disciples. A man who saw, who saw a few things that, that, that men would ever see. Did things that no man ever did. Denies the Lord during a time that the Lord needed him most and does so with the most vile oaths, cursings, and swear words that his mind could conjure up. But in our text, we see the bride of Christ clothed in white linen from head to toe, prepared in glorious array for this momentous occasion. We're told that this pure white linen is the righteousness of the saints. However, we can obviously see from the beginning of Genesis straight through the entirety of the Word of God that the saints are not perfectly morally upright. Same is true of us today. Those of us that are trusting in Christ for salvation, the Scripture calls us saints. Paul wrote to different recipients of his letters and he referred to them as saints. So their trust was in Christ. They're referred to as saints. Our trust is in Christ. We're referred to as saints. If someone believes themselves to be perfectly upright, he either doesn't understand sin or he doesn't understand the law. Either he can't see where he's broken the law or he doesn't understand that there's a law that has been broken. Most of the time, it's actually both. He doesn't understand either or refuses to understand either. So then, how how do we make sense of this text? There's nowhere in the Scripture that the saints are perfectly morally upright, and yet here they're said to be clothed in this white linen, which is the righteousness of the saints. I want to consider that this evening, this theme of the righteousness of the saints. First thing I want to consider is the issue of righteousness is the greatest theme in all the scriptures. What, What are great themes in the scriptures? Think of uh, as you sit there just now, what are, what are some of the great themes that you find in the Scriptures? I would say that the greatest of all of those themes is the theme of righteousness. Why, would, why do I say that? Well, first of all, the greatest theme is the theme of righteousness because God demands perfect obedience to His law. He demands from each one of us that we keep His law. We mentioned that righteousness means the state of being morally upright or morally perfect. God can demand nothing less. If he's God, he can't demand imperfection. He has to demand perfection, perfect keeping of the law. And that's what you find. You find this testimony throughout the word of God. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13. Habakkuk says of the Lord, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil and canst not look on iniquity. And then Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 1. All the commandments which I command thee this day shall ye observe to do, that ye may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers. The Lord cannot look on iniquity. He cannot look upon sin. He must 
In order to be accepted before God, you must have a perfect obedience to the law. That's why that command is given. All the commandments which I command thee this day, thou shalt observe to do. And so the, the desire uh, of the Lord, the, the command of the Lord for each one of his creation to keep his law perfectly uh, makes it the greatest theme in the scriptures. It's the greatest theme also because righteousness is at the heart of the gospel message. When Paul is writing to the Romans and he's talking about the gospel itself, listen how he described, to how he describes the gospel. He says in, in Romans chapter 1, verse 15, So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. We preach the gospel in this church. Why do we preach the gospel? Because it's the power of God unto salvation. Without the message of the gospel, without the preaching of Christ, there's no salvation. Well, what is it about the message of the gospel that is so unique? What, why, why is it necessary to preach that gospel to obtain salvation? Paul says, for therein or because therein, in the message of the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, we're going to see in a few moments that there's two ways of taking that that, that understanding of the righteousness of God. You can either be talking about God's righteousness in his moral character, right? He's perfectly righteous. He's holy. Or you can take that to, to, to understand there's a righteousness of God that he provides. There's one of two ways to take it. It's either saying in the message of the gospel, God's moral perfection is on display. Or in the message of the gospel, an obedience to the law provided by God for the sinner is on display. And we'll get to that in a moment. But I say the greatest theme is righteousness because it's at the heart of the gospel message. And then the third thing that we see under this point is it's the greatest theme because without righteousness, there's no hope of life. I mentioned this this morning, that in dealing with justification and dealing with the, the act of God, whereby he reconciles sinners to himself. He does two things. He removes their sin, which is their transgression of the law, so that any anger or wrath that God has toward the sinner is removed. He does that through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. When Christ went to the cross, this is why we preach the cross of Christ. Because without the shedding of Christ's blood upon the cross, there is no remission of sins. We've broken the law, every one of us. I just went through the scriptures, even those that are singled out as men of faith. From the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, they're not holy. They're not holy in themselves. They don't have a righteousness. They break the law of God, sometimes to an extent that they would immediately face execution under today's standards. And I wouldn't even say that today's standards are a very high standard. That's, that's what you find it, from the beginning of the scripture today. So the, everyone has sin. The book of Romans tells us that in Romans chapter 3. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Just because we go to church and we come to the Lord's house every Sunday, by no means are we saying that we're righteous. By no means are we saying that we keep the law of God or that we're better than, than anyone else. 
Sometimes you look at the lives of God's people and on the outward appearance, they're a lot worse than everyone else. And we acknowledge that. We're not perfect. We're not perfect. But God sent Christ into the world to shed his blood upon the cross to remove the act of transgressions that we've committed. There's another aspect that's forgiven as well. It's our, our guilt in Adam that's, that's imputed to us. But I would just want you to focus on our actual transgressions here because we're actually talking about the righteousness of the saints. So the actual transgressions that the saints commit that condemns us before God has been washed away through the shed blood of Christ. So any, any breaking of the law has been taken care of through the cross work of Christ. But there's another aspect that we need in order to stand as righteous before God, and that is the imputation of righteousness or the legal obedience. It isn't enough that, that God sees that the transgressions of his law have been removed. The, but, but what God look for, looks for also is an act of obedience. It isn't enough that, that just the guilt is removed. God needs to see that you keep his law. Because the command is over and over again in the scripture. Keep this law and live. And so I say that the theme of righteousness is, is the greatest theme in the scriptures. Because without an obedience or a righteousness or a moral perfection. An active keeping of the law. There's no hope of life. Look at the, the testimony of the scriptures. And I said this earlier today. Of the connection between righteousness and life. Right? The cross work of Christ removes our guilt. The obedience of Christ or the righteousness of Christ gives us a perfect standing and gives us life. If you're here tonight and you believe that you are going to inherit eternal life, the only grounds upon which you can stand and hold that position is if you honestly believe that in God's sight you've kept his law. There is no life without a perfect keeping of the law. Now, you, you may understand that there's no hell because of what Christ did on the cross, but there's no life unless you keep his law. So you not only need to have your sin washed away, you need a perfect obedience if you expect to have eternal life. Look at the connection. We already read Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 1. All the commandments which I command thee this day shall ye observe to do, that ye may live and go in. And, and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swear unto your father. See the connection? The commandments which I command thee this day shall ye observe to do that ye may live. Proverbs chapter 7 verse 2. Keep my commandments and live. And my law is the apple of thine eye. No life without keeping the commandments. In Luke chapter 18. The... Uh, parable of the, uh, the rich young ruler, or the story of the rich young ruler. A certain ruler asked him, saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Tell me what I need to do to live forever. Right? What does Christ say? Why callest thou me good? There's none good save one that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. What does Christ do? The desire on the, of the rich young ruler is to live forever. Tell me what I need to do to live forever, to have eternal life. And the Lord says, thou knowest the commandments. And what does he do? He gives them the Ten Commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother. And, and the story goes on that Christ put his finger on thou shalt not covet. And he told him to give away his possessions to the poor 
and he went away sad. But the end of that narrative is not really what I want you to focus on here under this point. I want you to focus that even Christ himself, when he was approached by a sinner and asked specifically, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Christ took him to the law. Keep the commandments. Same thing you find in Proverbs. Keep my commandments and live. Romans chapter three, 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. Think it through. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. What's being contrasted there? It's almost as if by implication another word should be in there. If the wages of sin is death, the gift of God through righteousness is unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. If by breaking the law you die, the gift that God gives is through righteousness unto eternal life. And that's what's mentioned in uh, Romans chapter 7, just another chapter later. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death, because we can't keep it. But the point I want you to see is the commandment which was ordained to life. God ordained that life, eternal life, is only given to those who perfectly keep his law. You see it over and over again, the connection between righteousness and life. Maybe you didn't know that. I didn't know that for the longest time, even as a believer. I knew very little about righteousness. I was told that if I wanted to go to heaven, if I wanted to live forever, to put my trust in what Christ did upon the cross to remove my sin. And I trusted in Christ because I saw I was a sinner. I saw I, I came short of the glory of God. I needed a Savior, someone to redeem me from my sin. But that's only half of the story. The cross work of Christ and the shedding of his blood removes your sin. But if you expect to live forever, if you expect to obtain eternal life, you have to keep the law. You have to keep the law. It was ordained to life. That's what the passage says. And so I say righteousness or the keeping of the law or this moral obedience is the most important theme because without it, there's no, right, there's no life. But the second point I want you to see tonight is that the saints are said to, the, to be the possessors of this righteousness. And this is where you have to understand what this passage is saying. If we see from the scriptures that there's none that doeth good, that no one can keep the law, that we're all condemned by the law, we all sin. If, if that's the tenor of scripture, then obviously none of us can keep it perfectly. And yet you find the passage saying, that the saints are clothed in white linen. How do you explain this? Well, they're said to be the possessors of the righteousness. Two things I want you to see under this point. The righteousness of the saints is not their own law-keeping. Think this through. Stay with me. The righteousness of the saints is not their own law-keeping, but rather the perfect law-keeping of Christ as our representative, which is credited or put to our account, or imputed. The Bible, the, the, the biblical term is imputed. It's put to our account the moment saints believe on Christ. The very, the very challenge that a preacher gives to a sinner to trust in the work of Christ, because what Christ did on the cross in shedding his blood was in their place, right? We call, we call it vicarious. It's the vicarious 
a substitutionary work of Christ. It's in their place. The obedience of Christ is also vicarious in the sense that his obedience is put to our account. So the work that Christ did on the cross in shedding of his blood washes away our sins, but the life of Christ that he lived without sin, the scripture makes it very clear, is put to our account as well. As we've already seen, righteousness is at the heart of the gospel. Romans chapter 1, verse 17, it's said to be the righteousness of God. It's a righteousness that God provides. It's a righteousness that every man needs. Men and women who are still in unbelief are ignorant to this fact that in the message of the gospel, God provides the very righteousness, the exact, precise, legal requirements that sinful lawbreakers need in order to be accepted. This is the number one difference. This is the difference between Christianity and every other religion of the world. Every other religion of the world seeks to promote that the unsaved seek to please God by their efforts at keeping of the law. Keep doing your best. Keep doing your best. Keep doing your best and God will overlook the rest. That is not what the scripture says. He's of a purer eyes than the old evil. He doesn't accept imperfection. The Christian understands that the demands of the law could only be kept and could have only been kept by that man with whom God is well pleased. So how does God provide this righteousness to me? If Christ kept the law and that righteousness is said to be imputed or put to my account, how does he provide this righteousness? I I like uh, uh, the message that Dr. Cairns preached a uh, number of years ago, I, I was listening to this message where he was talking about there is none like unto the God of Jeshurun. And then he mentioned later in that same passage in Deuteronomy chapter 3, Happy art thou, O Israel, who is like unto thee, O people saved by the Lord. But in talking about there is none like unto the God of Jeshurun, it has to do with righteousness, that term Jeshurun. And he says this, I want to read this part this excerpt from his message that he he had oh righteous people now stop and think of that the jews to whom this was addressed knew as well as you know about yourself they knew that they were sinners didn't they have the spilling of blood every day wasn't their camp reeking with the stench of burning flesh wasn't there that morning and evening and consistent throughout the day reminder of their sinfulness before God, and yet here they are addressed as, O righteous people. In New Testament terminology, we would be able to translate that, O justified people. Now we're getting somewhere. There is none like unto God, and we can say this and address this to a people who have been justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, by faith and not by works. There is nothing that shows forth the uniqueness of God. There is nothing that sets forth the majestic glory of God's mercy and God's grace so much as the biblical doctrine of justification. That's what sets the Bible's gospel apart from everything else that is religion in the world. That's what stamps the gospel with the authorship of heaven. It's the doctrine of a free justification by the imputed righteousness, the the imputed righteous merits of the Lord Jesus Christ received by faith, made over to our account 
establishing us and instituting us in a legal standing of acceptance with God, whereby the law is satisfied. Now get this, whereby the law is satisfied because it's been kept. God is satisfied because Christ kept the law. We are satisfied because we're accepted before God and all through the merits and all to the glory of God manifest in the flesh in Jesus Christ. Who is like unto God? None is like him, for he is the God of justifying grace. That's what Dr. Cairns had to say about justifying grace and the imputation of Christ's righteousness to our account. Praise the Lord tonight that in the message of the gospel, the moment a sinner comes and trusts in Christ, God not only views him as having never sinned, but he views him as having perfectly kept the law, every commandment that's given in the scriptures. And on that basis, gives that child of God life. It's the only basis that we can expect and hope that we receive eternal life. It's because Christ kept the law for us. Justification is an act of God's free grace to sinners in which he pardoneth all their sins and accepteth and accounteth their persons as righteous in his sight. Not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but only for the perfect obedience and full satisfaction of Christ by God imputed to them and received by faith alone. This is what we referred to earlier in Romans chapter 1 as the righteousness of God. It's a righteousness, it's a perfect legal obedience provided by God that is put to the account of the sinner. In my life, I look in the mirror What do I see in my experience? I see that in thought, word, and action, or thought, thought, word, and deed, I see a man that knows one thing to do well, and that is to break the law of God. I I break the law of God well. It's my nature. I'm corrupt. Paul says his vile body will be one day made like unto Christ's glorious body, but in, in the meantime, on this earth, Even someone whose trust is in Christ, I see failure. I see a standard that is perfect that I cannot keep. That by my actions, I cannot win the promise that God gives in his word, which is eternal life. I can't do it. I can't do it. And if you're honest and you you look at the law of God and the commandments that God gives, you'll know that you can't keep it either. So there's no hope of eternal life for the sinner. But if that sinner reads and hears the preaching of the message of the gospel and understands that Christ Jesus came into the world to save lawbreakers, to save sinners, then you and I have hope. Because now, not only did he die for our sins, but he merited that perfect righteousness. Everything Christ did in this world, he did according to the law of God. That also is put to our account. So that someone who breaks, someone that, 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 that knows how to break the law well, by virtue of my trust and reliance upon my Savior, the Scripture says that that righteousness is put to my account. You see, that's too good to be true. It, it can't be. Listen to what the Scripture says. Romans chapter 5, verse 17. For if by one man's offense, death reigned by one, that's Adam, his sin in the garden, Much more they which receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life. 
There it is again, righteousness and life. It's a gift, gift of righteousness. Shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. There it is. The perfect legal obedience that you find in Revelation chapter 19 belongs to the saint when they receive that free gift. It's the obedience of Christ. The righteousness of God. It's it's the righteousness that God provides. And it's not just that passage. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 and 9 through 9. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and that way he was heard. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation. He learned obedience by the things that he suffered, and then he became the author of eternal salvation to, unto all that obey him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For he that is God hath made him, that is Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin. When Christ was on the cross, God made him to be sin for us. He punished him upon the cross for the sins that we committed. For us, that's the gospel. But then it also goes on to say that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That we, lawbreakers, might be made the righteousness. He was the one that kept the law perfectly. He became sin. That we, the lawbreakers, might be made the righteousness of God in him. It's all about Christ. It's all about the gospel. That's why we preach the gospel. We don't preach to try to keep the commandments the best you can. The scripture's clear. We can't do that. But the scripture says there's a salvation, there's a righteousness that God provides in the gospel. It's a perfect righteousness. And it's that righteousness that you and I need in in order to merit life. It's put to our account. It's a free gift. The free gift unto life. (laughs) Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch. This is a prophecy by Jeremiah from so long ago. I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days, Judah shall be saved. And Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. Jehovah Sekenu. That's what it is in in the literal Hebrew. This is the name that's going to be given to the one who is the righteous branch. He's Jehovah Sekenu, the Lord our righteousness. It doesn't say the Lord who is righteous. It says the Lord our righteousness. And to drive this home... Just 10 chapters later in the same book, there's a verse that it sounds almost exactly the same, but it's a little different. Listen, follow me. In Jeremiah 33, verse 14 and 16, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised unto the house of Israel, unto the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause the branch of righteousness to grow up unto David. And he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. In those days shall Judah be saved and Jerusalem shall dwell safely. And this is the name wherewith she shall be called. 
Change of the pronoun. This is the name wherewith she shall be called. The Lord our righteousness. Makes no sense. How is it possible that 10 chapters earlier in a prophecy concerning the God-man, that he is said to be Jehovah's Sikenyu, the Lord our righteousness, because he's righteous. But then 10 chapters later, that same title is given to her, who is Judah, the people of God. The only way that can be the case is that that righteousness is put to her account as well. If your trust is in Christ for salvation tonight, that stamp is upon you. God views you. This is amazing. I say this with all authority from the word of God. God views you this evening. If your trust is in Christ, he views you as Jehovah's Sikenyu. How can a vile wretch like me, how can a guy who all I'm good at is breaking the law of God. How is it possible that I can have anything good at all said about me, let alone be called Jehovah Sidkenu? How is that possible? Because in the sight of God, the righteousness of Jehovah Sidkenu is put to my account. I'm joined by faith to the one who has merited this righteousness. So that vile and full of sin, I can have the confidence that tonight God views me as righteous. Ah, it's not what I experience. Too many people know me too well. Everyone that knows me knows me too well. I'm not righteous. But that's not how God views me. God views me as Jehovah said, can you? Do you feel the weight of your sin tonight? Do you feel the burden of your sin? Do you have the desire, the longing that the God of all the earth would view you and accept you as righteous? Come to Christ. It's in Christ that we we see Jehovah Sidkenu. Perhaps one of the most clear passages in all of the word of God, Romans chapter 10 Beginning in verse 1, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Paul had a burden for his own people, the Jews. His desire was that they would be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. They have this desire to please God, but they don't even know what they're doing. Because they don't know God. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, listen to this. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Is this talking about God's moral character? No, it isn't. Because the the very service that the Jews offered to God, even in their ignorance, was because they knew God was righteous in his character. But if this is a righteousness that God provides in the gospel, read it that way. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own legal obedience, they haven't submitted themselves to the righteousness that God provides. And then verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. If you hope to be viewed by God as righteous, don't go about to establish or attempt to establish your own righteousness or to try to do things to please God that you would be accepted before him. It can't happen. 
We're sinners. But in his mercy, God has provided a righteousness in the gospel that is perfect. The Jews didn't understand that. And so they rejected Christ. The stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. The cornerstone of all those that are in Christ is Jesus Christ, our righteousness. The Jews couldn't see it. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to all that believeth. Then he goes on, perhaps one of the greatest exhortations that Paul gives. Say not in thy heart, who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who shall descend into the deep, that is to bring up Christ from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee. Even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is the word of faith which we preach, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. That's the righteousness that God gives. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, God views you as righteous. You're saved. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Romans chapter 4. What shall we then say that Abraham our father is pertaining to the flesh hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was imputed to him or accounted to him for righteousness. If he was justified by works, he is whereof to glory. Lord, look at me. What says the scripture? Abraham believed God and it was put to his account for righteousness, his belief. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace but of debt. What's that mean? Well, it means if you go out and work and you get paid, you're not getting paid because the, the, the employer's gracious. You're getting paid because the, the employer owes you, right? You work all day. To him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace but of debt. You work for someone, they owe you. But listen to what Paul says here. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man to whom the Lord, unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Oh, it's not by your, it's not by your labor. God gives, gives righteousness freely by his grace. Great texts. Great texts. That over and over and over again, and we're not surprised because Paul says it's the heart of the gospel. Why is the gospel the power of God to salvation? Because in the message of the gospel, God gives a righteousness that we can't earn. That's what he means when he says the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Everyone that believes from faith to faith, it's revealed that God reveals and and gives them his righteousness. And that message is in the gospel. That's why it's the power of God into salvation. That I, the moment I believe, am viewed by God as Jehovah said, can you? It's amazing. There's not a greater message that sinners need to hear tonight. And that's why I say, That the saints are said to be the possessors of this righteousness, even though we're not morally perfect in ourselves. That's how our text can say she's clothed in white linen from head to toe because of what Christ has done. 
It's a righteousness that's imputed or put to our account by faith. This imputed righteousness of the saints gives us a perfect standing in the eyes of God. Oh, the the Lord himself even drove this home. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, For I say unto you that except your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter in to the kingdom of heaven. Oh, the righteousness that God provides in the gospel. The last thing I want you to see, not only is it the most important theme of the scripture and that saints are said to be the possessors of this righteousness, but lastly, the saints, therefore, as the possessors of this righteousness, enjoy all the rights that go along with being viewed by God as perfectly righteous. As if, as if it wasn't enough for us simply to know that God is no longer angry with us. That would be enough for me. To know that God not only isn't angry with me, but that he accepts me now. The same way he accepts his own son. His Christ's righteousness is put to my account. God views me that way. But then look, look what it says. A very similar passage to our text is found just a few chapters later in Revelation chapter 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Right, Very similar text to Revelation 19. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God, shall, God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. For the former things are passed away, and he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for the words, these words are true and faithful. He said, I, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. And he that overcometh shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Very similar passage. Because... The bride of Christ is clothed in Christ's righteousness. What do we see from this passage? Same text, same idea of what's going on. Well, this passage tells us that we inherit a new heavens and a new earth. I don't know what that's going to look like, but I know this much. There won't be sin on the new heavens and new earth. We dealt with this a little bit last week. And it goes on to say that what we have unbroken fellowship with God. The tabernacle of God is with men. God's dwelling there. Tabernacle means tent. God's tent is with men. Unbroken fellowship with each other. Because that tabernacle of God is with, with, with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. One people gathered together. No more death, sorrow, or tears. That's what the, the passage tells us. No more, no more death, sorrow, crying, neither shall there be any more pain. We inherit all things. By all things... It leads us to understand there's a lot that we are going to inherit that we don't have, that the Bible doesn't even tell us about. Just, it just sums it up by saying all things. And then the last thing, we will know because we have Christ's righteousness put to our account, we will know the love of God for all eternity, right? This morning we dealt with sonship, right? The relationship a father has with his son. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. I will be his God and he shall be my son. The righteousness of the saints. Do you feel righteous tonight? Probably not. 
But praise the Lord that our acceptance before God is not based on how we feel. It's based on how God views us in Christ. That's the message of the gospel. So I trust that the Lord will take these thoughts and write them upon our hearts for his name's sake and for his own glory. We'll conclude our service by standing and singing hymn number 589. 589. Soldiers of Christ, arise. And we'll stand together and sing all three verses.